You, my friend, with your swivel-eyed uh, fury against the world's only Jewish state that you don't share for any other country in the world, only for the world's Jewish state, you are suffering from Israelophobia. Let's talk about that. Yeah, let's do this. Let's confront the latest expression of Jew hate, that which hates Jews for their country. Strides have been made in explaining anti-Semitism to the non-Jewish world. Jews Don't Count by David Bedil should be congratulated for cutting through. It's a polemic explaining how anti-Semitism is seen as a kind of second-class racism, a blind spot for the left. But Israel was separated from the discussion, ignoring the elephant in the room. Because 9 out of 10 Jews say Israel is central to their Jewish identity. We can't really have a conversation about Jew hate in the 21st century without confronting those who try to separate anti-Zionism from anti-Semitism. It never takes long for anti-Semitism to spring from slurs which start with Israel. Enter Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle. He also writes for The Spectator, The Telegraph, and you've seen him on Sky News, reviewing the papers. He spent a lot of time overseas as a foreign correspondent as well. And the time is ripe to discuss Israelophobia, the newest mutation of the oldest hatred. And Jake gives his first interview about it to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. It's a deep yet accessible conversation coming up, chock full of historical references. Jake Wallace-Simons, welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you for having me, Johnny. Not the first time you've been on the show. No, I think once once more, uh, but that was during the pandemic, wasn't it? Israel's vaccine rollout system. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Seems like a long, long time ago. It was a long time ago. Water under the bridge. Who knows? Congratulations on Israelophobia, an accessible deep dive into the prejudice against Israel and by extension, Jewish people. So many themes in this comprehensive tomb, but let's try and get through as many as we can. As pithily as you can, Jay, can you define for us Israelophobia? Well, Israelophobia is the newest version of the oldest hatred, by which I mean that it is anti-Semitism. It's not different to anti-Semitism. But anti-Semitism over the generations mutates like a virus, uh, depending upon the context in which it finds itself, the social context. So, you know, as Rabbi Sachs pointed out in that famous speech, um, Jews used to be hated for religious reasons as the Christ killers or as the infidels in in Muslim societies uh, in medieval times. And uh, during the 20th century in particular, it became, with the birth of science and that as, and the, after the Enlightenment, um, they became hated almost for, science, for pseudo-scientific reasons as the uh, inferior race, as Unter mentioned, uh, for, for racial reasons, I suppose. Um, but now, uh, after the Holocaust, when that race-based hatred has become taboo, certainly in the West, if not elsewhere in the world, um, anti-Semitism has been rumbled and has had to move on again and change, sh- shift its shape again. And the shape that it's taking on currently uh, is a hatred for Jews that's political. That's a hatred of Jews 
that's attached to their nation state, which is the state of Israel. And in a Western world which likes to call itself progressive as a compliment, what is it about Israel which seems to inspire a more intense form of ire? That's a very good question. I mean, I think that Israel, you know, as as Saul Bellow put it in his book on Jerusalem, from one point of view, Israel should be quite insignificant. It's, it occupies one-sixth of one percent of Arab lands. Uh, it's very, very small. It's a long way from here. It's 3,000 miles from here. It's 4,000 miles from the United States. Um, its population is smaller than London. Um so territorially and physically, it's it's small, but the Israel that exists in the imagination is is vast. Its its significance is huge. You know, Judaism is at the it is the foundation stone of modern civilization, of Christian civilization, and some extent of Muslim civilization. Uh, and the way that Saul Bellow puts it is that its influence is as deep as sleep. It's huge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of Israel. Uh, the, the, the Jerusalem of William Blake, you know, it's the place of the Crusades. It's the it's the place of Christ. You know, the the um, Jewish culture, the, the Jewish city of Jerusalem was elevated by Christianity to become the holy city, uh, and the Holy Land became the Christian Holy Land. Ten Commandments became the the, the, the cornerstone of Christian civilization, and a Jewish prophet became the Son of God. That's that matters. Mm-hmm. And yes, we live generally in a secular society, but these deeply embedded cultural significances are not easy to shake off. Um, and, you know, for example, uh, there's been some research which showed in parts of Germany where in the 14th century they burned Jews at the stake, blaming them for the Black Death. 600 years later, were more likely to vote for the Nazis. And that's despite the fact that in 400 of those intervening years, Jews were not in there. They're not in those areas. They had, they had left. So these tropes are very deep, and it's as a result of this deeply embedded cultural prejudice that when you have the background of the medieval blood libel, for example, where Jews were blamed for the murder of Christian children and the use of their blood, it comes so naturally to a BBC presenter to suggest that Israeli troops are happy to kill children, her words, not mine. Mm. It feels right. Why does it feel right? because of the weight of anti-Semitism over the centuries. And so you've answered the question, why now, in, in this many words, why have you written this now? Is the clue perhaps in the first chapter's title? It's the newest hatred. I think now is, is, a, is a good moment because the debate has become so confused. And this leads me on to talk about the word itself, Israelophobia. Because, you know, in, in Britain, since... The, the time that Corbyn was elected in 2015, it, the, the debate really came to the fore about the difference between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. And in, in reality, before Israel's establishment, there was a legitimate argument you could have made that it wasn't a good idea. In fact, a lot of Jews made that argument. But as I say in the book, there's a difference between contemplating an abortion and killing a child after it's been born. Anti-Zionism today is targeting a real country with 10, 12 million people. Where are they going to go? Undermining the right to exist of a, of, a, of a country that is thriving, that is in the real world, is a very different proposition from anti-Zionism of the past. Nonetheless, um, 
anti-Zionism has become a cover for the worst anti-Semites to hide behind. And whenever somebody exhibits some sort of rabid, hate-fueled hatred of Israel that relies upon lies and slurs and misinformation and venom, and you say to them, well, you're being anti-Semitic, they will say, no, 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 no. I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm only anti-Zionist. And here's my fellow hard-left fringe eccentric Jew, who's my alibi. Mm. To which you, then the debate goes down the rabbit hole of whether anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism are the same thing or not. And the idea that it's wrong to hate any country with that level of bigotry and, and, and venom and disdain gets totally lost in the, in the secondary debate about anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. And so what I'm suggesting is, let's just say, you, my friend, with your swivel-eyed uh, fury against the world's only Jewish state that you don't share for any other country in the world, only for the world's Jewish state, you are suffering from Israelophobia. Let's talk about that. Because we live in a time where assorted social justice movements, such as those who espouse anti-racism, not enough that you should be against racism, that you should be ideologically an anti-racist, they end up in attacks so often on the Jewish state. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's a hallmark of, of anti-Semitism. You know, anti-Semites have never possessed the ability to see into their own hearts and work out just what's going on. They've always felt themselves to be on the side of the angels. You know, the, the, um, as Hannah Arendt writes in her, in her, in her book, particularly on, on Eichmann, um, the, the you know, SS officers were taught to believe they were doing something good. They were saving the world. They were taking on the hard task of killing men, women and children and, and requisitioning their property so that future generations would not have to do it, would not be plagued by the menace of the Jew. They believed it was the right thing to do. I'm sure they had the tweak of conscience in the dead of night, but they were very good at tamping it down, as Hannah Arendt talks about, this moral inversion. And today, uh, anti-Semitism is weaponizing another uh, a fashionable ideology, which is the ideology of social justice. And this is one of the hallmarks, I think, of Israelophobia, that you can use the language of anti-racism to promote racism against Jews. And there's a whole history in my book of how the social justice movement which originated in America and critical race theory and all of the things we know about um, came to have a problem with Jews, came to cast Jews as being hyper white uh, rather than um, white adjacent at the very best. Yes, what we are um, in reality which is uh, exactly. and sorts of brown and white. Exactly and there is an example in Crown Heights some years ago where Jews were attacked and a local community leader said they were attacked not because of anti-Semitism but because they were hyper white. Right. Because also as you mentioned there a bit of introspection from these haters might arrive at the idea that they are disgusted at the image of today's self-assured confident Jew, the Israeli, lies in stark contrast to that rather annoying Woody Allen image. They don't like it up them, as Corporal Jones from Dad's Army said. Um, and that really doesn't cover it either, the idea of the sort of wimpy intellectual Jew who's not good at sport, who's, you know, good at medicine or law or whatever. I must contest that actually being a descendant of the muscular Jews of the Middle Europe, the champion sportsman, uh, and women. The image of Woody Allen expresses the tragedy of the Holocaust. We've actually forgotten who we were. Uh, we were murdered in such number that the great sports teams of Middle Europe, 
the great champions of football management and coaching. Uh, that's all been forgotten, and it's manifested itself in this 21st century confident Jewish Israeli. Well, I, I would take it back even further than that. I mean, if, if, particularly with respect to Israel, go back to the Bible and see how, how, qui how quivering and cowering the Jews were back then. This was, you know, biblical Jews <clears throat> had their own kingdom. They weren't afraid to wage war and defend themselves. They had their own system of jurisprudence and justice and morality. And they gave the world monotheism and book of law. Fast forward to the pre-Holocaust era and to some extent, and well, to a large extent, the Holocaust era. And Jews were downtrodden, were bookish, were hair-splitting, were Talmudic. And the early Zionists saw that as a degeneration yes. of Judaism. Um, and anti-Semites seized on that. I mean, Roald Dahl talked about how, you know, if I was put in a queue for the gas chambers, I would have taken a couple of them with me. I wouldn't have just lined up like Lancet. Or, Look at these wimpish Jews. Mm. They're not like us red-blooded red Englishmen. They are, you know, despicable. For, uh, and yet, Roald Dahl himself also had it in for the Israelis, who were reacting to, are reacting to, that weakness, quote-unquote. I'm not yeah. endorsing that. As Dara Horn put it, people love dead Jews, living Jews not so much. These days we have, um, you know, Israeli fighter jets swooping over Auschwitz in a, in a bold statement of never again. And in that, they are resonating with, with where Judaism came from. I mean, you know, if... The, the, the patriarchs of Judaism were here today, they would hear people like Jabotinsky saying it's time to fold our arms and say, who are you to judge us? I think our, our role is to say to you, go to hell. We were here before you, we'll be here after you. Yes. We are entitled to our own heroes and our own villains. And, and the patriarchs of, of, of ancient times would nod along and say, yes, that's the spirit that we recognise, I think. Um, and certainly it's something that I, that, that I think gives everybody a cause for hope and confidence. And if you're listening to this around the time of Purim, not just the Torah, it's the Megillah Esther. That's quite a triumph. Uh, in the Paul's panel verdict, a way win is uh, what we talk about uh, with the Megillah Esther. That amazing and extraordinary story uh, beyond the shores of uh, biblical Israel. And it's this uh, dogmatic delineation of Jewish identity to separate Israel from Judaism that the modern haters seek as like a, a free pass from the followers of Jeremy Corbyn to that large bloke who screamed for death, Muhammad Hijab, mm -hmm. which, by the way, uh, annoys uh, great friends of ours in the Muslim community. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't love life. We, we love death. Fayez Mogal, he doesn't love death. He loves life. In allowing Muhammad Hijab to say those things about Israel and Jewish people, he's demeaning the beliefs of millions of right-minded Muslims who abhor the extremism that's occupying their religion. Are you playing catch-up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends that it knows in Turkey. There isn't a fertility rate problem in Israel, um, for instance, as there is in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. 
I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, and known to some as the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be canceled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from a journalist, and often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that that, to be honest, really really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be to be truth tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, I, for me, Israelophobia is not just about Israel and Jews. It's about liberal values. It's about trying to inject some sense of confidence into what we believe and know to be to be right, which is, you know, equality, dignity, the respect of minorities, and, you know, the, the, the ability to defend uh, a proper system of justice. The Jews are, as ever, first in the firing line when it comes to this overall assault against the West and against Western history and values. And um, that's a very vivid example. You know, we've got to a position in Britain where somebody can, you know, where, where cartoons can be published in national newspapers of Jewish prime ministers creating a wall with the blood of Palestinians or eating, biting their heads off Palestinian children. And it can be explained as, oh, that's just criticism of Israel. We've got to a point where characters like Muhammad Hijab that you, that you pointed out during 2021, during the Gaza uh, conflict, is able to stand on High Street Kensington and, and, and roar, you know, we love death. We, we you know, we, we're not like you. We embrace death and we're willing to fight to the last man. And these sorts of ideas are not just tolerated, but, but sort of legitimised in the West because there's this unholy alliance, this red-green alliance, there's this sort of liberal indulgence. The, the, the liberal sort of um, uh, problem with Jews finds its reflection in Islamist problem with Jews. Yeah. And there's this weird sort of fission there. And so, you know, the, the, the front that I'm trying to, to, to defend is the front of Western liberal enlightenment values mm-hmm. and a respect for uh, the sorts of things that we all really believe in. And Israel is, is, first, is first in that front line. Back to Jake in just a moment. But this is the first podcast made back in Blighty for quite a while. The last three episodes came from Israel, taking in Kerem Shalom, the border crossing between Israel and Gaza, where the interests of the governments of Israel and Hamas converge. Hamas needs Kerem Shalom to keep their supermarket shelves stocked and Gazan workers enter Israel via the Erez crossing on a daily basis. And this everyday business of the border crossings continues in spite of the threat of indiscriminate rocket fire beyond. The myth of Gaza as an Israeli-created prison camp is demonstrated by seeing Kerem Shalom for oneself. We also visit Sterot, 
the border town bearing the brunt of rockets, as I talk to the teenage soldiers at a secret Iron Dome location. It's the anti-missile system with a 95.6% success record of blowing the bombs out of the skies. Scroll back to episode 116 for that and press the follow button, tell your friends. And I go to the Knesset to learn if anything can be done within Likud to ease or compromise the worst disagreements over judicial reform. And that's episode 117. And the conversation is always rich and rather real when I get together with Dr. Eddie Cohen, PhD, the loudest Israeli voice in the Arab world, who reaches 570,000 Arab speakers across the region on social media. Follow Johnny Gould's Jewish State and Head to episode 118. And now back to Jake Wallace-Simons. Let's unpack the word itself, Israelophobia. I'm reminded of the term Islamophobia, which on first inspection targets the expressions of uh, hatred for Muslims or Muslimness or perceived Muslimness. However, others say that it hinders criticism of Islam and even counter-terrorism. Anti-Zionist critics of the Israeli state could use the term Israelophobia to accuse Israel supporters of doing the same. You know, don't you criticize us uh, in the same way as Islamophobia might be seen by certain people. That, that word is contentious, isn't it? Israelophobia. Or is it? There are other forms of phobia which are rooted in um, hatred, but there are some which are used as a bulwark against free speech. Yeah, I think, I think the first thing to say is that in the, the, the book is very much not the case for Israel. It doesn't make pro-Israel arguments. What it does is it defines an Overton window within which criticism is reasonable. Um, and defines the the uh, what lies beyond the Overton window, which is hatred, bigotry, lies, distortions, misinformation, and anti-Semitism, and that is what I'm calling Israelophobia. So, for example, in the book, I'm very clear about saying that it's it's totally legitimate and respectable to support the Palestinians. I mean, they they've got a clear moral case, and they've got the right to make it. Um, what what isn't legitimate or shouldn't be respected uh, is the is supporting the Palestinians from the point of view of anti-Semitism, of lies, of, of age or blood yeah. libels, which is what I'm calling Israelophobia. That's the first point. But with regard to the term itself, phobia, there's a lot of different meanings that, that cluster around phobia. There's the medical version of you know, arachnophobia, for example. Right. I'm not talking about a fear of Israel in the, in the same way that people would fear spiders, God forbid. Um, I'm talking about a hatred like xenophobia, hatred of foreigners, or homophobia, the hatred of gay people. Now, when it comes to Islamophobia, I mean, that, of course, is a contentious term, as we know. What I'm really saying is, look, you want to talk about phobia? Let's talk about phobia. It's a way to say to people who talk in the currency of phobias to include anti-Semitism in their catalogue of racism yeah. and phobias i'm not saying i'm not seeking to legitimize islamophobia or otherwise it's not about islamophobia it's about anti-semitism and perceptions of israel that are bigoted which brings us on to the idea of reasonable criticism and where the line is drawn um, neither of us are saying that you can't criticize israel this is not an attempt to stop 
criticism of Israel. It is possible. And you gave some room in the book to Edward Said, one of the leading anti-Israel intellectuals who you say refused to stoop down to tropes, to conspiracy theories or Holocaust denial for his criticism. So if his criticisms are legitimate, where where do you draw the line? It's about from the river to the sea, isn't it? It's about the complete destruction of Israel. Well, I mean, Edward Said, I personally think he's, he. I mean, he's very much close to the frame of the Overton window, shall we say, if not yeah. just outside of it. Anthony Julius defended him in his book, you know, the, um, the, 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 law, the lawyer and anti-Semitism expert, defended him because he didn't indulge Holocaust denial and conspiracy theory. But Edward Said's writings do involve quite a lot of distortions and untruths. And for me, that places him right on the edge of acceptability, if not beyond beyond it. Um, but I think that you know, the, in the book Israelophobia, I give a definition, which is a tripartite definition. Israelophobia is a disproportionate hatred of, of the Jewish state, which relies upon demonization, which is exaggerating its flaws and giving disproportionate attention to them. Um, weaponization, taking on the language, using the language of social justice as a Trojan horse mm-hmm. for racism. And finally, falsification, which is depending upon arguments and tropes uh, and disinformation that were formulated in Soviet-era uh, propaganda and Nazi propaganda. Lies like Israel being an apartheid state, which, by the way, was coined several years before any kind of, quote-unquote, occupation of the West Bank. There wasn't a single Israeli on the West Bank when Israel was first accused of apartheid. Uh, things like ethnic cleansing, like white supremacy. I mean... In, 19, in the War of, 19, of Independence in 1948, the attempts to conduct ethnic cleansing was on behalf of the Arab world, not on behalf of the Zionists. The idea of white supremacy, I mean, you know, Israel is majority non-white. These ideas, they're all, all the idea of, of genocide, Israel perpetrating genocide. I mean, the Palestinian population has grown fivefold since Israel's establishment. That's a pretty bad genocide. <laughs> Jews aren't usually bad at things. Um, and so, and these are, these ideas, you know, they all came from Russia, mainly Russian propaganda, and preceding that, Nazi propaganda, and yet they're regurgitated today as part of Israelophobia, combined with the weaponization of social justice language, the veneer of respectability, and demonization, and and that really is is how I'm defining it. One of the sad repurposes of uh, of lovely words in the English language, uh, one of the saddest ones is the term luxury. Um, I used to enjoy my luxury soap and uh, luxury cars. And now, of course, we have luxury beliefs, something called luxury communism. Who knows what that is? Um, Throwaway lines by people with a vague interest, a casual interest in issues which actually have real life effects on us, on Jewish people. So when Gary Lineker tweets something about the Gaza war, where he has a trace understanding of what's happening based upon a 45 second video he has watched and adds a bit of commentary to uh, the casual free Palestine at work when you say you're going to Israel on holiday these things you know really affect Jewish people and they just throw away lines from those who are partially interested or not at all well I mean this is this is really that that's the the, that's the core constituency of readers that I'm trying to win over I'm writing a book for them they are people who they're not serious they're not serious they haven't really thought about 
the issue that their, their knowledge of it is quite limited to perhaps sound bites and and, uh, and and memes and the odd article in the Guardian. They're generally of the left. They're progressive. But the word, the term luxury beliefs, which isn't my term, it's from a, a, an American psychologist. Luxury beliefs indicates that when people have don't have to worry about paying the bills. Mm-hmm. When they occupy elite positions in society, when they have a university education and a part of the liberal progressive elites that are at the helm of almost all, in fact, perhaps all, of this country's institutions and many of those elsewhere. Um, the luxury beliefs become a marker of social status. Uh, that's why they're, lu- they're luxury, because you're not holding them because you have to. You're holding them because you choose to, as, as a way of telling people how high you are in the Brahmin caste, mm-hmm. as it were. So they include radical positions on gender, on race, colonialism and empire. And of course, Israel and Palestine is, is one of that suite of beliefs. And because assuming, you know, I mean, you, you try to go to an Islington dinner party as a supporter of Israel and express a defence of Israel, you'll get, you'll get sent out without any, any coffee and meringue. So you have to pick um, the time you eat it, otherwise you miss dinner. So, so, it's, yeah. uh, so my, my point is that, that, that these beliefs are often held there's an, there's a, from a point of view of almost self-reflection, almost narcissism, I think. Mm. I'm, I'm believing this because I want you to think that that's the sort of person I am mm. rather than mm. actually having a deeply held set of values yes. that I'm promoting in the face of opposition. Uh, and that's what the phrase luxury beliefs means. And I, I think that with these people, they're not necessarily bad people. They've just had comfortable lives and haven't had, had cause to question the values that they hold. Um, often they're well-meaning and just want to be good people and want to do the right thing. And I think, I'm, I, my hope is that a reasoned, fact-based argument, like I'm making in Israelophobia, which allows for criticism of Israel, but just points out, maybe don't call it a white supremacist ethnic cleansing state, because it's not true. Mm-hmm criticise it for reasonable reasons, mm-hmm. uh, I think might get through to them and, and prevent, perhaps sort of prize away uh, a, a hatred of Israel from that suite of luxury beliefs. Indeed, the, the biggest fallacy you've just touched on there about Israel being a white colonial outpost can be seen on the streets of Tel Aviv, Haifa, Yerushalayim. Most Jews are brown. In fact, the Arab Israelis who live there, most of them are brown too, not all of them. Um, the overriding Israeli culture is broadly, I'm going to brushstroke here, broadly Moroccan, not Polish. Um, the ingathering of exiles from Arab lands was accelerated in the 1940s and 50s uh, and 60s. It's inconvenient, isn't it, that uh, the uh, majority of Israelis are darker skinned when they're not white colonials. They're from Iraq and Libya and Lebanon and Syria and Yemen and um, even Sudan. Yeah, I mean, look, looking at the history of Israel, it's very clear that it's not a colonial state. It's a, it's a post-colonial state. Any sane reading of the history comes to that conclusion because it's the truth. It's a fact. It reminds me of, I mentioned Saul Bellow earlier, it reminds me of a, another statement that he made uh, in his book on Jerusalem where he talks about how intelligence can be used very much in the service of ignorance when there's an illusion to be maintained. Um and there's a lot of intelligence that's gone into trying to ignore the history and pretend that it doesn't exist. But it does. You know, you, you have um, after, you know, Palestine was occupied by the Ottomans for 400 years. 
First World War comes along, the Ottomans lose because they side with the Germans. The Britain, uh, as one of the victors of the First World War, has a mandate uh, in Palestine from 1917 onwards. Mandate meaning until we can divide it up between the people who are here yeah. and sort it out, as they did elsewhere. Um, and then in 1947 proposed to partition the land between the dominant ethnicities that were there, as was done in, say, Syria and Lebanon, as was done in Turkey and Greece, as was done all over the former Ottoman Empire. You have example after example of, par of partition by high-handed allied powers based upon ethnic lines to create new nation-states. They all involved violence, internecine violence, community unrest, forced population expulsion. I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of Greeks were expelled from Turks, from, from Turkey, yeah. uh, in the process of what they call Turkification. This is not unusual. It was the same story playing out in all the post-colonial world. Israel was part of that post-colonial picture. There are various differences. One is, of course, the diaspora that, as you said, the ingathering of the exiles, that's different. But the, the main difference was that Israel didn't expel the Arabs that remained there, but gave them full citizenship. I mean, that's pretty unusual in the region. Yes. Another example was that the, the Palestinian side, the Arab side, rejected it, as we know, and, uh, and waged uh, a, a, a campaign of, of attempted ethnic cleansing uh, in, in, on the issue, on the, on the Jewish settlement there. The, the first time the Palestinians rejected the two-state solution, there were many times, the first time was in 1947. We mustn't forget that. And this brings us on to a very important point about Judea and Samaria and that the idea and narrative going on out there is that Jews aren't allowed to live there. Jews should be allowed to live anywhere. Uh, we are largely and have been throughout our 3,000 years a diaspora in exile. And here we are on the doorstep of what is modern-day Israel, uh, an area of land which was the birthplace of the Jewish people, Judea, Hebron, etc. And suddenly Area C is approximately the only part of Judea and Samaria that one is allowed to live in. And even that is on the table in Jeddah at the moment uh, with uh, Saudi-Israel normalisation discussions, which will probably go on. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I should say, first of all, that I... Um... You know, if I were to live in Israel, it, it wouldn't be on the West Bank no, you, in Judea and Samaria. I'm not religious. I'm not, uh, and I certainly have no time for those uh, Israeli radicals in that area who engage in violence, intimidation against Palestinians, or seek to steal their land or uproot their olive trees, of which there are yeah. a small number, but a significant number. Uh, and I think they are beneath contempt. That's the first thing I should say. The second thing I should say is that the vast majority of people of Israelis living there are not of that sort. Yes. Um, many of them, I would say the vast majority of them, wish to live in peace with their Palestinian neighbours, and in many cases do. You know, I've been to the supermarkets where uh, so-called settlers and local Palestinians shop together. You know, 200,000 Palestinians work in Israeli communities and, and gain a, a great deal of economic benefit from that uh, every year. Um, and it just occurred to me as I was writing the book, and it's in the book, you know, how can one justify the exclusion from Jews from living on the West Bank because they're Jews? The partition plan of 1947 proposed two states, an Israeli state with a sizable Arab minority, which came to pass, 
and a Palestinian state with a Jewish minority, which did not come to pass due to the racism, xenophobia, anti-Semitism and Israelophobia of the Palestinian side. Um, and yet people don't question that. I mean, imagine if you said Muslims are not allowed to live in Britain or in Wales or in the southeast, mm. or Hindus are not allowed to live in uh, wherever it is, you know, bits of India, or Muslims are not allowed to live in India, whatever the ethnicity is, you know, Basques aren't allowed to live in France or whatever, you know, imagine the uproar. There's such a double standard, you know, there's a sense that in, you know, Sundakart Waller's recent book on immigration in Britain talks about how long does it take before a them becomes an us in immigration into Britain. The first generation seen as a them, second generation is as they still them, third generation have got to be an us. You might be of Indian extraction, but you've been born in Britain, your parents are born in Britain, you've got to be British. It feels like to me the Jews in Israel are seen by liberals as the eternal them. Mm. There's no us that we can get to. There's no point that we can progress to where we're finally seen as accepted as a legitimate form, a legitimate people in the Middle East, despite the fact that Jewish history goes back 4,000 years yeah. in that country. Yeah. It's outrageous. And the Palestinians are seen as the eternal us. Jews are seen as the eternal them, not allowed to live in certain areas which are held to be Judenrein. That cannot be right. It doesn't, it doesn't align with liberal Western values. Jake, I wouldn't have put you down as someone who'd put their, uh, their name down for a, for a flat in Hebron. I'd put you down maybe as someone in Rechov Schenkin, perhaps, <laughs> uh, perhaps Florentine. <laughs> yeah, a nice flat there overlooking the uh, football stadium there. If you're offering, I'll take it. Uh, absolutely. Let's see if we see what we can uh, cobble together. I mean, it's a very contemporary book. It's written right up. Uh, to the spring of this year, um, criticising fringe members of the Netanyahu coalition and Israeli Jews, as you just mentioned, living in Judea and Samaria, who took the law into their own hands and attacked Palestinians in Huara. Um, and, you know, we've both been there in the last few weeks. Despite the turmoil of Janine, rockets occasionally coming over from Gaza, judicial reform, the place, the fabric of society is much the same. The place is a happy one, despite all the problems, internal and external. Volleyball is still played on the beach, an improbable 18 hours a day. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Not by you, Johnny? Not by me. I like to watch. <laughs> um, and the streets full of people conducting free and happy lives. Um, there is a, a tremendous sense of heightened purpose. I think that's what I want us to communicate too about life in Israel for all its travails. Well, you know, there's that there's that um, epithet that Jews are like other people only more so, um, <laughs> and you certainly feel that in in Israel. Uh, my book contains many surprising facts, which may be familiar to your listeners, may not be. One of the, one of the ones that I, I I like most is the the UN Happiness Index. Yeah. The most recent one placed Israel at number four, but behind Finland, Denmark, and Iceland, the fourth happiest country in the world. Uh, there's a, 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 some American research carried out by an insurance firm, so I'm not necessarily saying that it's final, but it came out last last year. It was quite interesting, saying that Israel is the fifth safest place in the world. It's got one of the lowest crime rates in the world. Uh, as we know, it's it's it uh, it's it's Tel Aviv is the gay capital of certainly the Middle East, but, but possibly <laughs> yeah, possibly possibly even even the world. Yeah. Um, you know, Israel has its has its problems. It's it's a divided country it has different tribes it's a middle eastern really in its in its foundation 
as Reuven Rivlin said, it has four separate tribes, secular, national, religious, Haredi and Arab, and they're pulling in different directions. And we've seen those fissures come to the fore um, recently. Its political system is a total mess. No sane person would design it like that. In fact, it wasn't really designed like that. It evolved badly. Mm. It's a total mess. There are problems with extremism, with, with territorial um, competition and so on and so forth. But like you say, you go there and you feel that, that, that there's life to be lived there. You feel that, as my daughter put it when we came back, the 13-year-old daughter, you feel that, in she said that in Israel, there's a reason to live there. Mm. Uh, in Britain, she didn't feel there was a reason to live. I mean, it's comfortable, it's great, but there isn't that sense of our values being front and centre to defend and to live and to promote yeah. uh, yet. I don't know how much, on, how much attack they're going to have to face until we wake up and begin to defend our own values here in Britain from, yes. from, from, um, from, from uh, detractors. But certainly in Israel, it feels like there's a moral reason to live, to be alive and to be there. A real sense and of it, purpose. And the values that people are defending in Israel, by and large, the mainstream, are the same as we should be defending in Britain. I'm always struck. You know, you go and walk out at 11 o'clock at night in the summer, and of course it's still 27. And women are jogging and walking together in, in groups, sometimes on their own. It feels safe. It's something that um, women don't want to do here. It is and it feels safe. It is not surprising. That's right. I mean, us. I think it's got the feeling of family there in yeah. the Jewish area, certainly. I and mean, connection. And it, and I don't know that person, but I can relate to that person. Yeah, and, and certainly, and, you know, it's, it's, if you go to the settlements, as they're called, you'll find that people leave their doors open and, and it's very safe. There's the crime rate. I think Israel is 135th, something like that, in, in the list mm -hmm. of, uh, of crime, which means that it's one of the lowest crime rates in the world. I think it's important to recognise that the Arab communities often have a different story. There's a, there is a crime ep epidemic in the Arab communities in Israel. There's a lot of arms, there's a lot of poverty, there's a lot of, um, of, of, uh, of dismay there. There's not much hope and there's not much on the horizon often for a lot of the communities. We saw that erupting partly uh, during the Gaza war in 2021 when there was the rioting in Israeli Arab in, in mixed areas. So I think we mustn't sort of seek to define Israel only by the Jewish experience and certainly not by the wealthy Jewish yeah. experience. There are a lot of poor Jews as well, Mizrahim. They, you know, life isn't easy for everybody there. Uh, and yet, like you say, on the whole, for many people, there is a real sense of togetherness and sense of purpose and a family belonging there that we, and a coherence, cultural coherence, uh, you know, in, in some ways that we don't have here. I am always amazed at the towns and cities in Israel that I confess that I'd not heard of who are listening to my podcast. So, delighted to see Cholon and Tel Aviv and Yerushalayim and Rishon Letzion, Petach Tikva, all up there. Hello and good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. But I also saw recently somewhere called Kulantave. I look it up. It's an Arab-Israeli town. It's in the north. Population 21,000. Buketov uh, to them and, uh, and and welcome to our podcast. It really cuts through. I've even had audience in Janine. I don't know if they were listening out on speakers or through headphones, probably headphones, uh, but uh, it really cuts through and it just actually emphasizes the idea that Israel is largely about unity. It can never be about uniformity. That's not possible. As you mentioned, the tribes all pushing in different directions. And yet that sense of purpose, there are certain instruments of Israeli life, God willing, the IDF is one of them, that they come together and coalesce around even some Israeli Arabs. Well, I mean, I, I would say that from my personal point of view, I, I grew up in 
in London going to school in Stanford Hill. My closest friends were all from Mizrahi families. Uh, my best friend was from a Yemenite family. Another very close friend was from an Iranian Jewish family. I had friends, lots of Moroccans. I grew up with, with uh, amongst Arabic Jews, I guess. And it gave me a real feel for that kind of Middle Eastern culture, which I've assimilated and I've got a natural love for. Um, as my time, my, during my time as a foreign correspondent, I visited many Arab countries. Um, I have related to Arabs. I have Arab friends, um, you know, both uh, in, Palestinian, in Palestinian territories on the West Bank and even in Gaza. I think it's important to emphasize that the uh, Arab people are the not just the cousins, but the brothers and sisters of, of Jews. Uh, we have shared roots, we have cultural bonds, and there are a lot of very, very, you know, huge numbers of very decent, upstanding, right-minded, proper people in the Arab community. And those are, you know, the people that we need to relate to and we need to win the arguments of those who are falling into the more extreme, against those who are falling into the more extreme camp. And we need to make people realise that while Israel, if I'm so presumptuous to speak on its behalf, not being Israeli, but, um, but, but you, know, it, you know, as a Jew and, and for Israelis, there's a pride. There's a pride in our identity and in ourselves. We don't have to explain ourselves or apologise to anybody. We are following our values and our principles. And we respect other people, our brothers and sisters, our cousins in the Muslim world in particular, and seek only a, a future of, of solidarity and peace. Amen. I love the idea of talking to my um, Mizrahi and Sephardi friends, cousins even, and finding that there's almost no difference between us, despite our different backgrounds. I hope they feel the same, but I certainly feel that. And, uh, and in my wanderings in the United Arab Emirates in more recent years, to hear them talk in the language of peace and understanding, and for them to explain the fundamental differences in their leadership culture, that they feel of themselves as Bedouins, they follow the leader, and that your democracy, that's great for the US and for Britain, for Sweden, for, you know, Denmark, everywhere. But for us, we follow the leader. You know, you, you, when you understand that we have bonds in other ways, that you can respect their, their, um, their relationship with, with their governance even more when you understand the bonds which unite us, which I'm delighted to say are human ones. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that there's a, 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 a bit in the book, quite a lot in the book, actually, about the origins of Arab anti-Semitism uh, in, in the Middle East. And um, in, in a nutshell, it's Quranic originally, obviously. But as we know, you know, if you go back to the Old Testament, there are bits in there which are pretty unpleasant, which we don't necessarily live by, which we sort of like, sideline. But nonetheless, it exists in the Quran and, and has to some extent been... Uh, the Arab society has been poisoned by that over the centuries. But really, the Israelophobia part of it started with Hitler, who, as you know, um, uh, uh, worked with um, uh, the, the, the Mufti of Jerusalem, yeah. uh, Amin al-Husseini, who was the Palestinian leader. He was like the kind of Yas Arafat of the, of the, of the 30s and 40s. Um, and he worked with Hitler during the war to translate Nazi anti-Semitism into an Arabic culture and broadcast it across the Middle East, mainly on the wireless, but also via leaflet drops and other means. And that really agitated um, Palestinian and wider Arab society against the Jews with all the 
conspiracy theories that the Nazis sought, sought to seed uh, both in Europe and in the Middle East. Um, and the Husseini clan um, vanquished the moderate Palestinian elements, the, the Nasasibis, and took control of the leadership. And then if you fast forward to when the UN comes, uh, when Britain, the British mandate leaves uh, Israel in 1947 and the UN proposes a partition plan, the Jewish side accepts it and the Palestinian leadership, i.e. Husseini himself, rejected it out of extremism and out of anti-Semitism. He wanted to complete the Holocaust, which he fully supported. Um, you know, the rest is history, but that that sort of version, that the Arabic version of Nazi anti-Semitism, which, is, which became Israelophobia after the birth of Israel, was transmitted into the Muslim Brotherhood by, uh, by uh, Husseini's friend Hassan al-Banna, then Saeed Qutb, who was like the, grandfather, the grandfather of the Muslim, Muslim Brotherhood thought, and of modern Sunni uh, jihadism, which then gave rise to Hamas, gave rise to al-Qaeda, and, and the 9-11 attacks, which had a, an anti-Semitic dimension to them, and indeed to ISIS. And, you know, if you look at the, at the Hamas charter, it explicitly mentions the protocols of the elders of Zion. It says, as we've learned, in the, as we can see in the protocols of the elders of Zion, the Jews want to take over the entire Middle East. I mean, this is Nazi anti-Semitism. This is Nazi-inspired Israelophobia. It's not like it. It is it. Yeah. And the, the, the shadow of Hitler still falls over much of the Arab world and expresses itself in, 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 in terrorism. So this is, the, the, yeah, this is what we're contending with in the fight back, in the promotion of you know, proper morality and liberal ideals, not just in the West and not just in Israel, but in the wider Middle East amongst Arab lands as well. So in defining that threat so very, very clearly, uh, let's ask this question to our Jewish listener. What would you say to an increasing column of the Jewish diaspora, which is questioning its support for Israel over the battle for and against judicial reform? Uh, my thoughts about that um, is to quote the Torah, if I forget the O Jerusalem, may my right hand wither. And I'm checking out my friend's withered right hands when I hear that pushback, uh, because the threat should never be internal. The threat is external, as you've really defined there in, 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 in graphic time. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the Jews have been through worse times uh, yes. than judicial reform. I think, you know, if you look at it before, before January, before Netanyahu came to power with his current coalition, judicial reform, the, you know, the, the, the issue had been around for decades and enjoyed about 70% support in Israeli society. Fast forward to today and the sort of... Um, the unpleasant characters, shall we say, in the cabinet who are driving a lot of these things, the extremists. And you've got, you know, 25% of Israeli society, according to the polls, roughly, uh, who want the whole thing passed and shoved down everyone's throat. 35% who object to it at any cost, even any element of judicial reform on the left. And then you've got the majority, 40%-ish, who are willing to have some reform, but with a broad-based consensus that's, that's, that's across the spectrum of politics. And that's where I fall. And that's where I think it's reasonable for most people to fall. Um, but I think something else, that one of the hallmarks of Israelophobia is that when Israel sins, or when, I should put it, individual Israelis sin, yes, it's taken as 
a reason to deny Israel's legitimacy. So when you see a video of police brutality in Israel, of the sort that we see all over France all the time, of the sort that we see in Britain, maybe racist police brutality. I mean, in Britain, we had some figures quite recently about stop and search of black children, strip, strip searching of black children in, in, in schools in, in, in Britain. And we see this, a similar story all over. Yeah, America speaks for itself. When you see it in Israel, no one denies the right of Britain to exist. No one says that Britain's an apartheid state or Israel or America's an apartheid state, despite actually America's history of segregation, which was apartheid. But with Israel, when you see such a video, people say, well, it's a settler colonial state that exists on brutality and has no right to exist. And I would just caution the absorption of that Israelophobia into the Jewish mind, particularly on the left in the diaspora. Fine, you know, oppose the reforms. I oppose the reforms in the current form. Oppose those, by all means. But don't allow it to undermine your sense that Israel has a right to exist and a moral purpose and should be there and needs to be there for the benefit of, uh, of, of, of the Jewish people. You know, I think that that is really crucially important. One of the difficulties is that when you criticise Israel or, or certain elements of the Israeli government, shall we say, there's a big difference between criticising a country that you love and criticising a country that you hate. And I find that it, you have to be very precise with the criticism that you make because there are so many people who are criticising it in bad faith. There's a third group of people as well who criticise the country they love to hate. And I think, sadly, some Jews on the left fall into that into that trope because, you know, the price of acceptance fully into leftist society is to be anti-Israel, to be Israelophobic. And it's tempting for a Jew who's on the left to, to play that game in order for, to, be, to be fully legitimised. Um, but I would caution against that and I would just, you know, urge people to not forget what your values are, what you stand up for. Or your right hand will wither. <laughs> um, Jake Wallace-Simons, I've really enjoyed reading this book. It's very accessible. You have explained some very complicated ideas in a way that doesn't take too much reading to understand. Maybe you have to go back and read the sentence again to have a look at it. Uh, but there's so many ideas in here. And I think that you will convince many people who uh, will might say, I didn't realise it was as complicated as that. I'm giving this a rethink. Israelophobia, the newest version of the oldest hatred and what to do about it. Author Jake Wallace-Simons, thank you very much for joining us here on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you, John. Tell your friends about Johnny Gould's Jewish State, Apple Podcast number ones right across the world, and a growing community of interest about Israel and the Jewish diaspora from every continent. Help me change the conversation. You can make a donation to do that. Buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould, that's ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould or donorbox.org slash jgpodcast that's donorbox.org slash jgpodcast